You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the EU Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. First of all, I want to thank the UW and, and the Center for inviting me for, and Ryan for sort of helping organize this. This is great. I always really like, I mean, part of my mission at the World History uh, Association really, and one of the reasons I like the World Hist- History Association is its link between high school, community colleges, and, and university professors, really trying to see them as an integrated part of teaching. And of course we are, so I always you know, uh, like the opportunity to do this. Um, you know, this is, uh, as I was sort of thinking about this, probably as, as all these topics will be today, there's, there's a, a hell of a lot more when I was sort of thinking about sort of how we can frame Germany within this, this context, and we're going to get to or have an opportunity today. So, you know, I heard some good questions already, and feel free to ask questions uh, uh, about, about sort of what I'm talking about. And, and uh, you know, when we thought of this, this topic of sort of authoritarianism in, in Europe and certainly to you know in the contemporary world I kind of want to finish in in terms of sort of looking at where Germany is today particularly Angela Merkel and what that may mean in terms of, of Europe and European leadership but of course you know one of the you know I was sort of struck by the reality and I think many of you are about Germany's position a, a century ago you know and Germany's position in, in Europe and the world has changed so dramatically. And so that's sort of the meta theme I kind of want to think about. Where has Germany gone from this state that was the pariah state of the first half of the 20th century, the, the state that many and most would argue drove Europe toward World War I? You know, maybe not the, the spark, if you will, but the driving engine that sort of pushed Europe toward that war. And clearly, you know, the engine that sort of drove Europe toward the, the Gotterdammerung of, of World War II. How does that country go from that position to a country that has embraced European leadership, has become the symbol of Europe versus this sort of nationalist symbol? And, you know, so how has that transition come about? And that's going to be kind of the, the theme I'm going to focus on. I'm kind of hoping, I'm going to sort of focus more on the latter, sort of the transition to, to leadership, assuming and kind of hoping that the story and the narrative as world history teachers is a little more common for the, the sort of first half of that in terms of aggression and, and where that came. But I want to try to hit on a couple of themes in terms of that because I think it sets the stage for trying to understand where is Germany today, where is this transition from this, this aggressor, uh, of the early 20th century to this, this European leader of, of the 21st century. And, and so I wanted to just sort of start, if, you, if I may, with sort of you know, trying to figure out this question, why was Germany you know, this aggressive, expansionist state in the first half of the 20th century? And I found myself, even as I wrote that, going, don't even go down that road. There's far too much to do in terms of that, right? I mean, but let me try to at least hit on a couple of themes that I think would maybe sort of raise this. You know, and one, 
I did my dissertation sort of lifetime ago on actually on German adolescence before World War I. And what I was doing was looking at sort of very sort of dominant theories at the time that somehow we could look at the causes of German, you know, World War I and Nazism within the German character. And specifically, there was a group that was called the Frankfurt School. There were sort of philosophers and others coming out of World War II that tried to look for the roots of, of German aggression within family structure, within school structure, and these kind of things. And so I actually looked at German adolescence before World War I to try to say, could we, in a sense, see the seeds of Nazism in the young people growing up before the war? Won't talk much about that, but it became, at the end of the day, I, I sort of questioned that sort of dominant sort of Frankfurt model, particularly from the standpoint of, of German youth. But it raised questions, you know, how do we try to explain why Germany was, was certainly one of the major protagonists of, of World War I, and I think I'll come back to it quickly, and many would argue probably still the dominant protagonist that sort of drove Europe toward war in 1914. And why was Germany the center of, of the, the brutality of, of World War II? And some have said there is something within the German character. Um, and there's a whole series of books you can sort of look at from this. You know, one of my, the classics and favorite is this piece by McGovern, um, From Luther to Hitler. And it was essentially this sort of Protestant argument that, that Protestantism and its sort of a bowing to authority, et cetera, et cetera, sort of drove Germans to accept authoritarianism in, the, in this sort of traditional argument. So there was this sort of threat of, of sort of authoritarianism within, within uh, the German uh, sort of religious structure ignores the fact that Germany has significant sort of Catholic, you know, sort of uh, Lutheran sort of differences. Some would look at German nationalism as a particular kind of German nationalism. And again, this is sort of taking a lot of things on. But nationalism in the 19th century as it emerges is often a cultural phenomenon, you know, a philosophical phenomenon in the 19th century. In, in Germany in the 19th century, nationalism gets associated, at least in some circles, as Germany sort of debating what this country may be if it comes into being, which ultimately it does in 1871, around the theme of Blut und Boden, blood and soil, and this idea that somehow there's an organic foundation of identity begins to draw people into the ideas of racism and other kinds of things. So was there a particular kind of cultural or sort of you know, political nationalism that emerges in Germany that is particularly unique to Germany within this? And again, uh, there's a whole series of debates. I'm just trying to say these are kind of the traditional ways in which people have kind of tried to sort of understand German aggression in the past. I'll come back to this guy. How many of you know about Fritz Fischer, German historian? Okay, um, probably one of the most important historians of, of, of Germany. Um, and it was Fritz Fischer, and I'll come back to him because he's an important sort of part of the turn toward leadership wrote a book in 1969 that was examined Germany's role in World War I. And it was, the, the title of it in German was Griff nach der Weltmacht, The Struggle for World Power, in which Fritz Fischer argued that Germany was indeed sort of driven by this sort of struggle for global expansion. And that was part of, and he ties it in a little bit to sort of Prussian mentality, Germany's position within the sort of geopolitical realm of, of Europe at the time, but Fisher essentially argued 
1969, again, I'll come back to this, that Germany really was the aggressor in World War I, and it was sort of animated by a goal for expansion and conquest. Uh, his book was very controversial in 1969, but I think it was very key to get Germans to come to grips, in a sense, with their historical past, which will be one of the themes I'll, I'll sort of get to. Very recently, and there's been a lot of look, obviously, from 1914 to 1918, as we're living with the centennial of World War I, uh, a military historian from England, Gary Sheffield, said, uh, you know, sort of looking back on the Fisher debate, as it's called, he said, Fisher's ideas have been vigorously rebutted, but never debunked, in the sense that the idea of Germany's role in pushing for World War I remains very strong for him. But again, it goes to the idea that there is something sort of particular about Germany in its aggressive nature. Uh, the one other book I wanted to just sort of allude to that was Daniel Goldhagen. Uh, people familiar with Goldhagen's work? Uh, again, a very controversial work. Um, Hitler's Willing Executioners basically argued that when we look at the Holocaust, that there was something fundamental, that there were, the Germans were Hitler's willing executioners. And it wasn't this German or that German. It wasn't just the German leadership, and that'll be a theme I'll come back to. But Goldhagen argued that it really was fundamental to, you know, as he called it, eliminationist anti-Semitism was fundamental to German culture. And so people became, in a sense, willing participants in broad parts of the German society to do this. And again, all these pieces in some ways are, are controversial, have been debated broadly. But what I want to try to sort of convey is that for, for a lot of people, there is, if we try to understand Germany in the early 20th century, is there something in that unique within the German character? Is there something within their geopolitical sort of reality that makes Germany the aggressor in, in this that they, they were? Um, and so there's all these debates about the German character. Because the other part of this, and how much time I'll have to fully explore this, but I think it's at least worth thinking, if there's something in the German character, has that character been transformed, right? I mean, you know, is Germany a different place now than it was in, in you know, 1914 or 1939? I'll get to it and hopefully I have a time for, I have a slide later on, for example, of, of Maggie Thatcher sitting with, with Helmut Kohl in 1989. And I happened to be in Germany right around, you know, after the, around the unification. And Thatcher held a meeting with all her sort of people in, in England. And it was, what are we going to do with Germany now that it's united again? Because her assumption was Germany was going to revert to this expansionist character. And Thatcher was just scared about the possibilities of a united Germany for this sort of return of German expansion and aggression. Um, you know, so... You know, is there something in this character? Or has Germany changed and evolved? You know, is what we're looking at with Angela Merkel and other leaders in the post-war world um, clearly different? So, you know, one argument would be this sort of argument on German character. You know, a second one I would say sort of, again, with just sort of some hints at this, would be sort of more context and contingency. The Germany had not something in its character they were just stuck, if you think of the, the phrase from World War I, they're sort of Einkreuzen, encircled. Germany was this emerging state surrounded by hostile powers. And Germany, in a sense, was always in a precarious position militarily. 
And so it wasn't, in a sense, a consequence of character. It was more a consequence of geopolitical realities that sort of drove, drove Germany to be more aggressive in terms of its, of its policy. And in that way, they would sort of say, you know, that Hitler, in a sense, is picking up not on global expansion and conquest as much as sort of, you know, the consequences of World War I, revenge of World War I kind of, kind of theory. Um, so that's kind of another way that sort of changes from the character of aggression to the idea that Germany was more, in a sense, stuck as an emerging nation state surrounded by potentially hostile powers and around it. And then there's kind of a third argument that, that is, is, I think, probably less uh, viable. But I throw it out there because particularly with sort of the coming of World War I and the debates about this 100 years down the road, there's been some recent works that have argued, look, it wasn't really Germany. Germans didn't shoot Franz Ferdinand, right? I mean, you know, this was Serbia. This was Russia's aggression toward Austria-Hungary and et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, the debate is, you know, have we misunderstood the causes of World War I, thinking that Germany and the blank check and the push of the Austria-Hungary, which is Fischer's argument essentially, was the prime sort of push toward World War I, for example. Um, so there's been some work on that in terms of trying to, you know, are we really sort of putting Germany out there because of the consequences of the actions, not from the actions in 1914 themselves, for example. The other argument, and I'll come back to this because it becomes important in terms of what I would call the historical turn later on, is arguments that emerged in Germany, particularly in the 60s and, and 70s, and then the early 80s, that became part of what was known as the historical strike, or the struggle for history in Germany. And to me, this is sort of one of the central themes I want to get to today, when we're talking about sort of, you know, historical memory. One of the reasons to sort of cut to the chase for me, why Germany is where it is today, is it had a tremendously vigorous debate about its historical past. That in some ways emerged, as I'll talk about, in the 70s and 80s. And ultimately, I think has been incredibly cathartic for Germany in terms of where it is and where it's going to go today. For example, I was talking to a friend of mine, a colleague, Tan Liang, who's a Chinese historian at Seattle U. And we're sort of talking about this idea of German leadership and historic, how Germans coming to grips with its past has been so important to it. And he said, look, by contrast, for example, look where Japan is. Japan is not an Asian leader, right? Japan, in many ways, despite its economic wealth, is a pariah from the perspective of many people in Asia. And in part because Japan has not embraced, come to grips with its historical past. If you think of the comfort women issue, if you think of a whole variety of other issues, you know, and you know, every year when the prime minister goes to the, in Tokyo, I've been to the, the memorial, right? You know, and there's memorials for the horses and dogs that died in the war. There's nothing to the victims, in a sense, of German ex or, uh, Japanese expansion. So one of the themes I'd have us sort of think about as I try to get to it is how has Germans coming to grips with the past sort of transformed Germany, okay? And I mention this because in some ways that coming to grips with the past was also motivated by a series of historical works in the 60s and 70s that essentially said World War II really wasn't Germany's fault. And at most, what happened, what the Germans did was carried out by a number of other people. 
U.S. in terms of how it treated Germans after, Germans that were expelled from Eastern Europe after the end of the war. They were essentially tried to make the Holocaust into a kind of comparative genocide study of, of equivalency. And one of the leading characters of that was a, was a historian by the name of Ernst Nolte, Germany and the Cold War. And essentially Nolte's argument was, you know, that Germany may have gone to war in, in 1939, but he did Europe a favor. We had to because the real problem in Europe was communism, Bolshevism, right? So that Germany, in a sense, took a hit, if you will, for Europe by, by invading the Soviet Union. He sort of minimalizes then the anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, and everything, and he sees it, in a sense, within this, this emerging struggle against communism, okay? So that's a very different way to try to evaluate what happens in terms of racism, anti-Semitism, expansion, okay? And so Nolte and a, a, a number of other historians in the 60s and 70s sort of writing in this vein then provoked a whole series of other historians to say, hold it. Is that what we did? We really got to look at this. And that's kind of where I want to get to with this, what I, what I will call this historical turn, okay? So you can just sort of look. I threw a couple of maps in just simply in terms of, of World War I and World War II. Um, but what I want to try to do is get to, in some ways, what happens after the end of World War II. Where does this sort of idea of German aggression go? And in a sense, how does Germany come out of the ashes of 1949 or 45? And in a sense, does it really change? Okay? So post-1945, if we think of, and I would buy into it, so I'm accepting my argument that Germany goes from aggressor to leader, okay? Feel free to sort of question that if you want to. But the question would be why? What are the changes that take place in Germany that allow or force them, maybe it's not even a willing thing, but sort of compel them to rethink their, their position, okay? And there's a lot here, and again, we can maybe just touch on a few of these. One which I think would certainly be simply the reality, right? Defeat, humiliation, occupation. Germany comes out of World War II divided, occupied, but in a sense that gives Germany, and if is there something to German character, a chance to sort of collect its breath, right? It can't do anything militarily. It doesn't have, in a sense, the capabilities out of World War I to remilitarize fairly quickly which they ultimately did as a consequence of, of the Treaty of Versailles. But it's also more than simply a geopolitical reality of being divided and occupied. It really is that sense where coming out of the war, and it's a long process, which I'll try to get to, Germans are forced, in a sense, to begin to look at themselves, to think about what, where they have been, and ultimately to sort of what has that meant for them. Um, you know, and, and a piece that's more contemporary piece, but I think it sort of strikes to that out of Die Zeit recently, talked about, you know, German self-criticism and self-loathing are part of the success story. Getting stronger by hating yourself. You know, so this sense of sort of, you know, again, reflection as a country and where, where it was and, and where did it go. That would become part of what I would call then, particularly it's sort of framed within the 80s, but I think it's part of a larger past that what was known as the historic strike or the struggle for the past, 
By confronting the 20th century head-on, Germans embrace the narrative of liberating themselves from the worst of their history. And so I'll try to sort of talk about that in terms of what has been this historical struggle and where has Germany sort of come to grips with this past. And then finally, one of the points I'd like to make in terms of leadership. You know, I think Germany's sort of coming to grips with post-45 in some ways was a long process of transformation, in part because you needed new leadership. You needed new generations, right? The criticism of the historical past begins really in the 1970s, and in part that's because by now you've got a couple of generations of Germans growing up that aren't directly tied to that past. And that's even true of the leadership that sort of emerges out of, of, of World War II itself. Merkel, I found this really, you know, fascinating for a German in a sense to say, right? Um, if you think of this sort of transformation, talking about the Ukraine in 2014, our task is to protect Ukraine of itself to, on its self-determination way and to meet old-fashioned thinking about spheres of influence in the 19th and 20th century with answers from the global 21st. That's a German sort of leader saying that. I think it really reflects this kind of transformation that Merkel herself reflects, okay? So the shift from aggressor to leader, as I said, do doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time for Germans to come to grips with their past, to find themselves in a different reality, and ultimately to move forward. And like I say, probably from you know, the end of World War II into the 1970s, in some ways, Germany's sort of position about its historical past remains ambivalent for a lot of reasons. For one, Germany's divided. And one of the realities, again, I can't really get into now, but essentially a divided Germany at one level, it's easy for, if you're in West Germany, to blame all the problems on the East Germans. After all, they were the Prussians, right? They were the Eastern, they were the Junkers. That was the mentality that sort of drove German militarism. So the West Germans would say, that's not us, we're democratic, that kind of cultural tradition was over there. And of course, if you were in the East Germany, you would say, those fascists were the capitalists that now preside in West Germany. So in some ways, coming to grips with the past, you could sort of mute that past because you blamed the other side in this divided Germany, okay? Um, and so in some ways, it kept the debates down about that transition, okay? I think another reason why it was sort of muted early on was a lot of those post-war leaders were themselves in some ways implicated in that past in one way or another. Having served in the war, lived in Germany, had parents, whatever the case would be. So I sort of say, you know, they, all, they adopted the old sort of Sergeant Schultz sort of uh, method of I know nothing, you know, I see nothing from, from the old Hogan's heroes. And that kind of dominated for a long time and a book I'd strongly recommend, even though it's almost 30 years old, uh, Richard Evans sort of talked about it, you know, in the post-war period, very little was said about Nazism. Next to nothing was taught about it in the schools. And, it, and what Evans does in this book is sort of looks at the historical debate in Germany from 45 into the mid-1980s. You know, when I was in Germany, I used to talk to teachers, and they'd say, yeah, you know, or students even, they'd say, yeah, the class sort of ended in 1939. And the teacher would say, we ran out of time. <laughs> Love to tell you about something else, but God darn it, we're at the end of the quarter, you know. This historical amnesia was, was sort of part of that. And then there was a group of historians, people like Friedrich Meinecke, who wrote a book in, in 1946 called The German Catastrophe, that he essentially tried to argue that Nazism was an alien force. 
Hitler was an Austrian. You probably heard that argument. You know, he wasn't really German kind of thing. All those kind of things. And then in, throughout the 1960s, the focus was on economic recovery. The economic miracle. Let's just put ourselves back together. Let's not worry about the past. Well, that begins to change in the late 60s and into the 80s, okay? Billy Brandt, who becomes the chancellor of Germany in the late 1960s, represents a new generation of German leadership. He'd actually fled the war. He actually had Norwegian citizenship during World War II to, to sort of avoid it. So he comes back, and he can sort of, in a sense, distance himself from that past. He begins to push for reconciliation between East and West, uh, what's known as Ostpolitik, and, and begins to focus on, if you will, normalizing German relationships. A key point of this as well, the whole 60s movement, right? Student movement, generational conflict, that begins to call questions about what happened in the past. And students that protest the Vietnam War, implicitly began to argue about what happened in Germany in World War II. And the questions about, Dad, what did you do in the war? Grandfather, what did you do in the war began to emerge. So the cultural changes that take place because of the student movement in the 1960s are ultimately very crucial for this transformation as well. And then one other thing that uh, I remember watching, I don't know, how many have ever seen this with Meryl Streep? Sort of this television series that came out in the United States in the, in the mid-1970s, The Holocaust. It was transformational. It played in Germany in 1979, and it really opened the floodgates of debate in terms of what happened in World War II and what did this mean. This is a piece from Der Spiegel at the time, suggesting that you know 41%, more than 20 million viewers had watched this episode. It sparked public discussion in West Germany, intensified public interest in obtaining information on the past. So in some ways, German's confrontation with the past began to emerge out of generational changes, but then also cultural shifts in terms of particularly sort of U.S. cultural media beginning to raise some of these issues as well. So by, anyway, the point being by the 1970s, some of the just survival mentality is beginning to change. Germany's beginning to rethink its geopolitical position but ultimately generational changes and, and historical changes are beginning to call questions of the past that are making Germany not simply sort of, you know, uh, find excuses for the past, but really confront the past in different ways, okay? And so this historical turn, let me hit a couple of points and then uh, we can sort of see where questions go. I would see some, let me try to get some critical things and then maybe hit a couple things on Miracle. One, as I said, is, is Fritz Fischer. German historian, Germany's will to power, Germany's uh, uh, reach for, for global conquest in 1969. Fischer argues that Germans, World War I was caused by German aggression. And for many, this was a seminal work because it forced Germans to confront their past and not simply say this was Russia's fault or this. The excuses were gone. Fischer talked about Germany's unique path of historical development, a Zonderweg. And so if you were, as a German historian, you know, I, when I did my, my doctoral stuff, I mean, every other sentence had the Zonderweg in it in some way, because this was it. Was there a unique path to Germany? And particularly for Fitzer, Fischer, I think he began to make Germans question, what was this historical path? A new generation of leadership, along with, with um, Billy Brandt, Helmut Schmidt, 
Social Democratic Party become more committed to European integration politically. And, and by the mid-1970s, as normalization, as the Cold War sort of diminishes in some ways in the reality, if you will, West Germany particularly begins to look at, at Europe more and more. Okay? Helmut Kohl follows that, and I'll talk a little bit about this, on that he emphasizes Germany's European future. But it's also Helmut Kohl that tries to what, in a sense, quote-unquote, normalize Germany's past. So if I can jump ahead quick and I'll come back to it. I have this, you know, this is a picture of, of uh, Francois Mitterrand, the French president, and, and Helmut Kohl um, remembering World War I, and they're holding hands. You know, there's lots in this about handshakes we could sort of think about. Uh, Trump's handshake with Merkel I'll try to sort of finish with, right? But the other hand... It was also Helmut Kohl that tried to quote-unquote normalize German, German history. If you remember, how many of you remember Bitburg, 1985, when Ronald Reagan goes for this speech at the cemetery? Kohl set him up to do that, and the, the cemetery outside of Berlin had SS soldiers in it. So it became the speech, in a sense, that was trying to sort of, you know, in a sense, whitewash the past. All these kind of things, so it's both a European turn more focus on Europe with success, but ultimately as well, this idea that as the past becomes normalized, people say, no, we gotta examine this past and really confront this past in different kinds of ways. And so that past begins to get there. And I wanna just get a couple of things in terms of this, because I know I'm rapidly running out of time and I'll try to at least get to Miracle and we can sort of see where the questions are. This leads then to what I would call the, you know, or what is called, not me, but the historical strike or the struggle for history that takes place in the late 1980s, in which Germans began to say simply, you know, we have to confront what happened. We can no longer sweep it under the table, which in many ways, for example, the French still do. You know, more recently, and more Cohen has done this, you know, they began to say, what was Vichy, you know, simply. You know, was Vichy carrying out anti-Semitic policies before the Nazis, or were they simply being pushed by Germany? That debate is finally taking place in France, but it didn't take place in France until the early, you know, 21st century. Germany began to confront its past. One of the most important pieces in this, and I would recommend it to you as teachers very much, was a project that came out of Hamburg in, in the mid-1990s. And this is uh, one of the, the books that came out of it. It's called German Ar The German Army and Genocide. The title itself tells you something, right? It's not the SS. It's not the Nazis. It's the German Army. And this debate about sort of where do ordinary Germans fit into the past, well, this book came out of photographs and postcards that were taken from Soviet archives after the fall of the Soviet Union. And what happened is they began to collect stuff that soldiers had left behind as they've been captured and ultimately killed, right? Well, if you look at this, pictures are of hangings, of murders, of brutality. And not only pictures, postcards. So the question became, who are you sending a postcard to? If you're A, producing postcards, this tells you something about the sort of normalization of the atrocities, right? You know, you're not simply producing an individual picture, you're producing something that you're now sending home. And did the people back home know about this? The, the Hamburg project that I sort of referred to it was part of the struggle for the past in the 1980s and then in the 1990s that really began to transform Germany and move it from this position where they 
they addressed this question of Germany's aggressor past and therefore gave them, in a sense, historical freedom to begin to move, I guess would be my argument, toward a new Germany of today. Well, let me hit a couple points, and I want to make sure we have a chance then to, to sort of give you uh, for, for questions. You know, uh, Timothy Garton Ash wrote a piece in 2012 in Foreign Affairs that I'd strongly recommend called The Crisis of Europe. Um, and he said, you know, West Germans, both elite and a large part of the populace, demonstrate, demonstrate an exceptional commitment to European integration. They did this for two very good reasons, because they wanted to and because they had to. They wanted to show that Germany had learned from its terrible pre-1945 history and risked to rehabilitate itself fully in a European community of values, even to the point of surrendering much of its own sovereignty and national identity. Having been the worst Europeans, the Germans would now be the best. As a joke at the time went, if someone introduced himself as a European, you knew immediately that he was a German. Okay. And there was just a piece in one of the British newspapers about the, the European Games, a track and field event next summer that the Germans are going to host. And the British were deriding the Germans because Merkel said, these are going to be European Games. They're not going to be about nationalism. It's going to be about Europe. And the British in a Brexit mode were going, yeah, right, you know, kind of, kind of thing. But this European turn, but they also had to demonstrate, you know, to regain the trust of people, um, and as they said, in some ways, Europe needs, Germany needs Europe in order to, to, in a sense, strengthen Germany itself, particularly in a post-war period, okay? Let me just hit one other point. You know, uh, there's a great picture of sort of, you know, Thatcher and Cole in 1989. You know, and, and so let me try to sort of make at least a couple of points about, about this woman who really is, in some ways, the global leader today. I mean, depending on your sort of perspective on these things. Um, and, you know, Angela Merkel. And, and I suggested a piece, and there's a great piece from The New Yorker. I don't know if this made it in, but from 2014. It's called The Quiet German, okay? And it's a, it's a look at Angela Merkel. Very, very worthwhile to read. But, you know, what makes her the European leader she is? And I think that's a great question. And I, you know, we don't fully know the answer because she's a pretty interesting person. She'd be a great poker player, right? She really holds her cards very well in some things. But it's interesting, you know, she was born in West Germany, but she grew up in East Germany. Some say how much of that sort of East German experience, you know, made her against authoritarianism, against sort of control, state control, and in a sense embracing that. Um, but also, you know, she's a scientist by training. And how much of her scientific background sort of allows her to see beyond the politics in some ways of identity, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so, you know, just two quotes on that and we can sort of think of her. There aren't many things she is into, but liberty and freedom are very important. And this is, of course, and this is the, the leader of the Green Party sort of saying this about Miracle. These, of course, are linked to the experience of growing up in a society where newspapers were censored, books were banned, Travel was forbidden. And then one other from uh, this piece in the New Yorker that I mentioned to you. Merkel's commitment to United Europe is not that of an idealist. Rather, it comes from her sense of German interest, a soft form of nationalism that reflects the country's growing confidence and strength. And to sort of end that with Henry Kissinger in a piece, you know, he said, in a sense, why has, you know, Germany become the leader of Europe? Because Germany needs Europe. As Kissinger said, Germany is too big for Europe. 
but also too small for the world. And Germany, in a sense, needs to find its home in the 21st century by seeing Europe as that partner that will sort of take it forward. So I'll just stop there, and there's probably a lot we can